By the way, I don't even like the word ally that much. It has been driving me mad, that word. A lot of men are policed into conformist silence. Men are afraid of other men. Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and this is Action Men, a series in which I have interesting conversations with men that actually get up off their backsides and contribute to the work that feminists are doing to prevent rape, domestic violence, and challenge pornography and the sex trade. Today I'm speaking with Jackson Katz, who has a long and fine reputation of tackling violence against women. And Jackson's TED Talk on these issues has been watched by five and a half million people worldwide. Jackson, hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you, Julie. I think that you were one of the very first men in North America, definitely, that I met that was doing the work that really took the issue forward in terms of education for boys and men and also speaking very openly and honestly about pornography and the sex trade. Interestingly, you say that you noticed around you the way that women's lives were curtailed and that the feminist activism on campus was pointing that out, one of the aspects being that no attention was paid to poor street lighting or campus lighting or whatever. But why did you engage with that? Because most men don't. So I would say most men know fine well that this is a men's issue, that men uh, cause these problems, that men perpetrate these sex crimes. But what made you decide to invest in this? Well, one thing is I wanted to change the world, right? I was one of these young men who, young people who looked around and said, this is so many, pro there are so many problems in the world. And I, and I want to, you know, I want to be part of the change. You know what I mean? And I, and I, to me, it became so obvious so quickly that feminist ideas in a, in a broader sense were at the heart of the changes that had to happen in the world if we wanted to have a build a better world. So, and again, it was never completely confined to one particular issue. It was it was always a, a broader um, palette of issues that I saw feminism as. I mean, basically one of the, I mean, Julie, this is this is one of the things that frustrates me. So to me, intellectually, it's so obvious, okay? To me, maybe it's not obvious because it's not talked about enough in the mainstream, but one of the basic feminist ideas is that gender is one of the organizing principles or one of the axes around which societies are organized, right? So in other words, it, which has enormous implications both for women's lives, but also for men's lives. And, and if you want to understand all these other systems, whether it's gender, excuse me, whether it's racial inequality or injustice or class stratification, class inequality and injustice, or again, war and militarism, you, if you don't have a feminist analysis of those issues, you're, you're, you're missing a huge part of the, of the picture, both intellectually and politically. And again, I, I, I was fortunate enough to get that. And I don't know, I don't know what it was. You know, there's different elements that people have in their own life. I was pretty empowered. I have to say one of the reasons why I was maybe different from some other men was because I had the experience of being very successful as a young man. I wasn't one of these men who were bullied or marginalized. I'm not saying I didn't have issues, but, I, but I'm saying I, I, I did have some, uh, a sense of agency, a sense of, uh, of possibility. Um, and I was totally unintimidated, I have to say, totally unintimidated by the t dominant male culture. And I think a lot of men are policed into conformist silence because they're intimidated by other men. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. And I think that we 
sometimes forget or don't pay enough attention as feminists about the fact that men are very often coerced, bullied, threatened into that kind of culture of masculinity, part of which, I suppose, the initiation ceremony is some act of major disrespect or even sexual violence or aggression towards women. I mean, did you see that going on in a parallel universe while you were at university, whilst the feminists were doing one thing? And was there a lot of machismo on campus? Yeah, yeah, normative, normative, like normative sexism and heterosexism. I mean, that's that was certainly uh, the case. I wouldn't say that I was part of explicit, you know, uh, rituals of degradation, you know, of sexist degradation. I wasn't. But I, I was aware that there was a certain normative male culture. And I mean, honestly, this is a really key point about about why so few men speak up about this. Men are afraid of other men. OK, so they're, they're both afraid of, of and I'm making a wildly general statement, but I think it holds globally. There's a lot of men who are good people and who don't like and don't appreciate at all men's mistreatment of women but they don't do anything about it in part because they're afraid. In some cases, the fear is, 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 is physical. They're actually physically afraid of other men's potential for violence. In other words, if you are a man who challenges other men's prerogatives and privileges, you are sometimes taking a risk with your personal safety vis-a-vis -vis other men. That's just a real, that's just a fact. But you're also, but I think the, the broader problem is not physical fear. I think men are socially afraid of other men. They're afraid of losing status. They're afraid of social, socially awkward interactions with their peers. They're afraid of losing some kind of uh, cachet as being, quote unquote, one of the guys. And so I think what ends up happening is a lot of men submerge their sort of moral sensibility about justice and fairness and equality in the moment. And those moments add up in the moment um, because they're afraid that or they make a calculation, consciously or unconsciously, it's a cost-benefit analysis that um, that if they do speak up, there's going to be a cost that they have to pay. And and I think, by the way, I think a lot of men in those situations who have a certain moral sensibility will tell themselves a series of stories as a way of assuaging their feelings of inadequacy or even guilt for not speaking up. And the, some of the stories that they'll tell about why they don't speak up in the face of other men's sexism, some of the stories they'll tell are things like, well, it wouldn't have mattered anyways. What am I going to say? Or what, 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 what I do is not going to really make a difference anyways. Or he was drinking and when he drinks, he does these, you know, these outrageous things. And so what's the point anyways? Or maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe it's just, you know, not as bad as I think it is. Or, you know, I'm just going to stay in my, my own lane. I'm, I'm going to treat women with respect, but I'm not really going to get involved in that stuff. And the result of those stories and more collectively is we have this incredible silence among men all over the world. Young men, old men, middle-aged men, white men, men of color, blue collar, white collar. In other words, we have a ton of silence among men. And I've been, I believe from the time that I started doing this work as a 19-year-old that there's an awful lot of potential male allies out there. And I, I don't even, by the way, I don't even like the word ally that much. And you know, I don't like the word because I don't, ally me, suggests to me that the women are are tasked with ending men's violence and men help them do that. I completely like, agree. It has been driving me mad that word, that word. And I'm so glad to hear you say it because absolutely right. You know, we can please let's think of another word. I mean, you talk about bystanders which I really like. Now that's the flip side, isn't it, of what people mean 
of as allies. So bystanders are, well, you tell me what you mean by men who are bystanders. Sure. Well, so so I'm one of the architects of the what's called the bystander approach to, to, to sexual assault and domestic abuse prevention and sexual harassment prevention. And we've been doing this since the early 90s. And in, in, there's way more to it than I'll than I'll speak of right now because of time constraints. But just to give you a basic overview up in, in, in the 1970s and the 1980s, when people did what they called sexual assault prevention or domestic abuse prevention, whether it's on university campuses or in communities, they largely focused on women and gave them, the idea was to give women tactics to avoid situations of potential risk and potential harm, and they called it prevention, but it wasn't really prevention. In other words, teaching women to look in the back seat of your car before you get in, or have a man's voice in the voicemail, or hold your keys as a potential weapon, or have a buddy system when you're drinking, or when you're out with friends, you know, make sure that you know who your friends are with. Women were taught these things, they are still taught these things, in urban areas, suburban areas, and rural areas, but it's often called prevention, but it's not. It's risk reduction yeah. because yeah. true prevention means going to the root cause of the problem, right? Or it's harm minimization, which right. is a terrible thing. Which is approach. not the same as prevention. Yeah, and we don't look at the perpetrator, right. and which is, right. again, another thing that you've actually really pushed. Um, for years, I've heard you talk about the way that language is so passive when we talk about rape. A woman was raped as opposed to a man has raped her. Well, absolutely. And so, but, 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 and I, I could honestly, the language piece is so incredibly important. But let me just for the sake of the discussion, can I just finish the, um, and I'll try, I'll tie it up a little tighter, but the, the, um, the bystander piece. When back in the day, when in the 70s and 80s, when men were focused on, again, it mostly was focused on women and how they could, uh, how they could minimize their harm. Again, not prevention, but harm reduction or risk reduction. Um, under the name of prevention. But when men were focused on, it was almost always as perpetrators or potential perps. So the spirit of the educational message to men was, you better know the law, you know, about consent and especially sexual consent, especially involving alcohol. And you need to know if you're anywhere near crossing the line, you know, and you're with somebody sexually, you need to pull back. Or when it comes to domestic abuse, if you are getting worked up in a relational conflict and you can sense that that, that, uh, agitation might lead to you acting out physically, you need to figure out how to de-escalate because you, if you go one step further, you could be committing a crime. The point, the problem with that focus on men and young men is that most men don't identify with that. They don't see themselves in that. In fact, right. on university campuses in the United States or in North America, and I would guess that this is true in, in the UK as well, but I certainly know that in the, in the, in the North American context, the vast majority of men who commit sexual assault on campuses, on university campuses, don't think that they've done anything wrong. They don't think that they've committed a crime. They certainly don't see themselves as rapists. And I'm talking about men who have committed the legal definition of rape and sexual oh, yeah. assault. I mean, exactly. It's like we can look at in the UK, in England and Wales, it was perfectly legal for a man to rape his wife right up until 1992 when feminists changed that law. Because right. the perception was, of course, these men, how could this be rape? She belongs to him. And the women also internalised that message. They knew that something terrible had happened, something they didn't want, but that they were also told this wasn't rape. Right. Well, absolutely. And that's one of the great, one of the many great feminist contributions to transformations globally over the past half century that have upended thousands of years of 
of patriarchal abuse that's been enshrined in normative practice as well as the law. I mean, this is an incredible story that hasn't been told as broadly as it needs to be told. The, 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 for example, the contributions of the domestic and sexual violence movement to human thriving and human advancement, not just women's lives, obviously women's lives and girls' lives, but also just improving us as a species and improving men's lives as well. Anyhow, the, the, when, I, when I was doing my work, and again, start in my, starting in my 20s, you know, my activist work as a university student, and then afterwards, and then in the early 90s, when I was trying to build the sort of educational uh, programming that I thought needed to happen, obviously, this, the bystander approach was an approach that moved beyond the perpetrator-victim binary. In other words, instead of focusing on women as victims or potential victims or survivors, and focusing on men as perpetrators or potential perpetrators which, by the way, doesn't work because most men don't even identify as perpetrators. Right. So if you walk into a room full of men and talk to them as if they're potential perps, they're going to say, why are you talking to me like this? You need to talk to the men who have a problem, not me. I'm a good guy. And most men say this to this day. Well, or they, they do the whole kind of hierarchy of abuse, which is go get those paedophiles. Go and talk to those that actually abuse kids. You know, right, they, right. They, they will actually say to you something quite blatant like, I hit her very occasionally, and I've never left a mark. I know. I I, I I appreciate that. So so I knew all of this was a structural, and educational and pedagogical challenge because if if we wanted to reach men and 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 yet we were talking to them as perpetrators or potential perpetrators, and most men disidentify with themselves as the a part of the problem, we have a problem. There was an approach that I, in graduate school, I had a professor who, along with his colleagues, was looking at a way of preventing middle school, that's, you know, 13 and 14-year-olds, bullying by moving, beyond, instead of focusing on the kid doing the bullying and the kid experiencing it, they focused on everybody else. All the kids around the kid doing it, all the kids around the kid experiencing it. And the, the, the beauty of that was it brought everybody into the conversation and, and, and gave them strategies for how they could support the victims and the targets of bullying, but also how they could challenge and interrupt the bully or the bullying behavior, not just by calling out or calling the agents of authority, like the teacher or the principal, to come into the peer culture and remove the offending party, but because the peer culture was going to police itself. Kids were going to make it clear to other kids, you can't treat kids like this. This is not, we're not impressed by this. In fact, you got some issues. And that's so powerful coming from other peers, you know, other friends and, you know, classmates. And so what we did is we, we imported that approach from the the middle school bullying prevention world into the sexual assault and relationship abuse world. And the, the, the goal of that was to get men to start speaking up and challenging each other when they act in any misogynist way. And by the way, not just at the point of attack, not just when they see an incident of, of sexual assault in front of them. This is not a, you know, nightclub bouncer training. You know what I mean? It's not, we don't need more nightclub bouncers. This isn't just intervening when an assault is happening. It's intervening in a whole series of, uh, on a continuum. So for example, you're a, you're a guy and you're hanging out with a group of guys, no women present. You could be in the workplace. It could be a school. It could be on a team, a sports team. And it could be online, in the online universe. And one or two of the guys in your group are making misogynist comments, degrading comments about women, about women's bodies, about... 
if you don't speak up and make it clear that you're not okay with that, then in a sense, your silence is a form of consent and complicity in their misogyny. And again, don't we know that misogyny and misogynist violence is not just come out of nowhere? There's a whole architecture of attitudes and beliefs that, 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 that help to support those individual acts of abuse. And so you can't claim, men can't claim that even if they themselves don't, just because they themselves don't commit sexual assault or domestic abuse, are, they're not part of the problem if they're not making it clear to men around them at all levels that they're not okay with sexism in any way. And again, by the way, Julie, this is so obviously analogous to racism. So if a white person themselves don't act out in explicitly racist ways, but they don't do whatever they can in their sphere of influence, both individually and personally, but also politically and socially and, and in the workplace. If they, as a white person, don't work against racism, then in a sense, isn't their passivity or silence a form of consent and complicity in racism? Or And this is true with heterosexism. It's true with any issue of, uh, you know, uh, inequality if you're if you're in the dominant group and you aren't actively working to break down the illegitimate privilege of those in your group and challenging and interrupting the the expression of that illegitimate privilege or abuse then in a sense you're part of the problem and so the way that i frame it in my work from the earliest days is we need we need, if we frame it as a as a as a as a positive challenge to men in other words you, you, you see yourself as a good person. Well, let's figure out how you can be a better person, how, be a better, not just a better man, but a better person and, and see how you can live up to your own sense of yourself. Because a lot of people, a lot of men, for example, including a lot of men listening to this conversation are good people and they see themselves as good people. But many of them have done probably nothing to speak out about sexism, to be using their position politically, professionally, in the workplace, as as fathers, as uncles, as coaches. How are you using that to speak out about sexual violence and domestic violence and sexual harassment? And if you're not, let's talk about what you can do because we want we, we want you to be better. And I think a lot of men can respond more, po more positively to a positive challenge in this way than they can to uh, stop being toxic message, which a lot of men do perceive. They, they perceive the message coming from, whether it's from feminism generally or from domestic and sexual violence movement. And I think it's unfair to a certain extent. I'm not saying, I'm not saying there's no reality here, but I think that, I think some of their perception is unfair, that, that they're just being, they're just being criticized. And I don't, and I'm not blaming, by the way, I'm not blaming women for being upset with men's behavior and for calling it out. But there's a concept, I don't know if you've heard about this. Loretta Ross, who's an African-American woman, a longtime social, racial, racial justice and reproductive uh, justice activist here and, ac and now academic here in the U.S., she talks about calling in versus calling out. And so, yes, we need to call out bad behavior, but calling in good behavior is, is in some ways even more uh, potentially effective. And I think, I think that the, the, the process with men of... of challenging them to, to, you know, to rise to the better angels of their nature, as Abraham Lincoln once said, it, it has potential. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm naive saying this. I think, I, no. I think I've been working with men for decades and I know that a lot of men can respond positively. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, it, it kind of ties in with certainly my, um, philosophy of feminism and feminism that focuses on ending men's violence towards women and girls, which is, we are extremely optimistic. We are, in fact, a good friend of men. We are not men's enemies because we don't believe that boys are born inherently bad, programmed to harm women and girls. 
we can see that change is possible and the potential is there, but but also at the same time. So that's the optimistic view and it's right and proper. We have to envisage, in my view, a world where there is no prostitution, there is no rape, etc. But at the same time, there are so many men that would call themselves, they might even call themselves feminists, um, which I personally object to, and they might absolutely see themselves as working alongside feminists like me. But they, in fact, sign up to that liberal feminism, which isn't really, in my view, feminism. It's the kind of sex work is work. It's stripping uh, and lap dancing is empowering. It's slut marches and, hey, you know, we've we can just be the same as the guys out there. You know, we can too, you know, drink copious amounts of alcohol and behave like an ass on a Saturday night. And it's that liberal feminism that some men really favour above the actual feminism where you are challenging men, often making yourself extremely unpopular, being disliked and and sometimes being punished and ostracised for it, for saying you are the problem. Now, so many men here and I know in the in the US sign up to what we call the fun feminism. This is what Andrea Dworkin, the late writer and feminist activist, coined. The fun feminism, which is if men sign up to a particular type of feminism and it costs them nothing at all, they're actually signing up to something that isn't feminism. It's not radical. This, the notion that boys will be boys that you often hear, I, I often say... You never hear feminists, like you just said, you never hear feminists saying boys will be boys. You know why? Because feminists have too much respect for men than to think that we're just overcome by our hormones and we can't control ourselves. Right, exactly that. Exactly that. It's an excuse. It is biologically determinist. It's the most pessimistic view of men imaginable. What it's saying is, to me, Jackson, you can't fix this problem. It's inherent. Right. And by the way, it, it, absolutely. And it's often said by people who claim to be defending men. So in other words, you have, me, you, have, you have people on the political right and sometimes on the left. I understand it's not just on the right, but you have people who are seeing themselves as defenders of men who will say boys will be boys. But it's an anti-male statement because it does suggest right. that men can't be better, uh, you know, People can't be have higher moral reasoning because somehow we're just overcome by these urges that we can't control. It's it's so it's so flipped on its head to call feminists anti-male when they're the ones who have too much respect for men than to claim that we're we're just knuckle draggers who there's no hope for. Right, and and often we're accused of saying all men are potential rapists when actually it's the men coming out with that ridiculous line about we can't help ourselves. Our whole minds are raging. They're the ones saying all men are potential rapists, not us. I know. And by the way, I have to say, and I'll 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 get to your specific question in a moment, but I have to say men's violence against other men is a huge problem in the world. And feminists have been talking about this for decades, for centuries even, but certainly for decades. And from the beginning of my work in this area, it wasn't just about altruistic concern for women. I have to say, what, what, what drove me initially to take you know, women, what we used to call women's studies classes in, in, in college and, and classes with gender in the title, because that was drawing me 
not because I, I already had a preconceived intellectual or academic or, or ideological inclination necessarily, but it was because I wanted to improve my own life because I was unhappy with some of the disconnect between the public presentation of, of myself as a, as a young man and the private struggles in my family and my, and my psyche and my thinking about relationships with, with girls. I happened to be heterosexual. So I wasn't happy with any of this really. And I thought, I need to like study this. I need to learn this. I need to have dialogue with women, with other men. That's what drew me into it. It was self-interest. And I think this, it wasn't just altruism. And I think one, one my friend and colleague, uh, Michael Kaufman, who's, you know, the founder of the White Ribbon Camp, one of the co-founders of the White Ribbon Campaign, a longtime activist and writer, he, he in 1987, wrote an essay called uh, The Triad of Men's Violence, which connect, the triad of men's violence is men's violence against women is connected to men's violence against men, which is connected to men's violence against themselves. For example, suicide, which is violence turned inward. And from, from the earliest stages of my sort of consciousness around this subject matter, I made the connections between all these forms of violence. And feminists have been making these connections, even though centering women's and girls' experience is critical, obviously, and it's, a, it's, the, it's the central feminist project. It's, beyond, it's broader than that. And, and so I, the reason why I'm saying this is we want to talk about building male out, you know, men, getting men to start standing with women and feminists. If you say to them, you know what? Feminists have been talking about this for decades. The feminists care about men's violence against men. Feminists care about boys, for example, growing up in homes where their father abuses their mother and traumatizes the kids. You know how many boys, and, and you know this because you, of your work for many decades, really, how many boys and men have been victims? Like how many boys and men's mothers have been murdered by their fathers or their mother's boyfriends? And the trauma, the incredible loss and, and sadness. How many men, by the way, not just boys, but how many adult men, myself included, have women in our lives who have been victims of other men's violence? I mean, the idea that somehow it's anti-male to challenge men's violence and to try to change systemic practices around, you know, sexism, that somehow it's anti-male. It's just, to me, it's so intellectually dis, uh, dishonest and disingenuous. It completely is. And I remember looking at a statistic about the prison system in the US, of which, of course, I'm deeply critical, as I'm sure you are too. And seeing that such a significant minority of young men serving prison sentences were serving it for trying to protect a female in their family who was being battered and abused. And they, of course, were also the victim of that father or stepfather's violence. And this isn't that kind of whole male protection racket of, you know, I'm going to take care of our women. It was, you know, some of the interviews I read from men who were incarcerated were saying, what were we supposed to do? He was going to kill her and he would probably kill me. And that violence that reverberates through men's lives of which they're a victim but also can actually lead them to be aggressive and to learn from that controlling mechanism that his father or the older male relative used is something that feminists have long been concerned about and about how we actually break that cycle for some men. Oh my god, yeah, absolutely. And and by the way, one of, again, one of the basic basic feminist uh, sort of projects, if you will. And I'm talking about, and again, I'm making a broad statement and there's, you know, all these intersectional elements and you can say that this is, has different cultural and global North and global South applications, but I think it's pretty generally uh, uh, consistent across patriarchal societies is to break down the artificial distinction between the private sphere of the family and the public sphere, in part because the private sphere has been 
the way that men have historically controlled women, keeping them confined to the private sphere of the family. And it's a it's a false dichotomy in so many ways, in part because what happens in the family spills out into the larger society in so many ways. And and I'll and, and by the way, another point I make often is again, it's basic feminist you know, one-on-one stuff, okay? I'm not saying that I came up with this, but the, the family is supposed to be the refuge of safety and security from a violent, cruel world, and yet it's the place where women and children are most vulnerable to violence from men. Let's let's talk about your books, because I'm really interested. I mean, I've read your books. I've known of your work over the years. We've met at various conferences and events. I think the first one we met at was an anti-porn conference in Boston and... I read The Macho Paradox, along with many others. It's a bestseller. Um, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help is the um, the subtitle of that. Brilliant. And one that I was really interested in, as we all are, because those of us that engage with the machismo within American politics and politics elsewhere, um, Man Enough, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and the politics of presidential masculinity. I mean, it's all fascinating stuff because people think that men doing the work you're doing has just one kind of monolithic view, which is men are bad. We've got to cowtail to feminists. We've got to just jump to the tune of women who've been doing this work from their perspective and don't really see the way that the culture, the political and social culture feeds into the misogyny that we need to take, pay attention to. I mean, what is it about Trump that meant that he would have been a better bet for the American voter than Hillary Clinton? And don't get me wrong, I think the Clintons are probably one of the worst things that's happened uh, to Washington, but I think Trump's probably the worst thing that's ever happened to America. Why? Well, (laughs) I appreciate Again, there's so much to all of this. Uh, I would say... Um, the Republic, frankly, the Republican Party has known since Richard Nixon how to play identity politics with white male voters. And they always, you know, in the, in the mainstream conversation about so, so-called identity politics, people of color and women and LGBT and other others are often accused of they're the ones who are playing identity politics. But the dominant culture, it gets a pass. We live in a, you know, in a media culture where politics is not about policy. I mean, people aren't voting based on policy. If you look at the public opinion polls about, about where people stand on political issues in the United States, the, 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 generally speaking, the overwhelming majorities are left of center on almost every major issue, but they end up voting for candidates and parties that are literally antithetical to those positions, yes. except those people, those part, the, part, the Republican Party and the um, and the candidates are doing something else. They're 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 giving they're giving them cultural recognition. In other words, watch Donald Trump's speeches. Right. For example, he always name checks blue collar professions. He'll say things like we love our police officers. We love our truckers, the truckers for Trump. We we love our, you know, firefighters. Uh, you know, I love the military. He'll say these things and the, you'll see these white men in the audience and, and in the broader sort of culture. Yeah, somebody's finally speaking up for us. 
and it doesn't matter that then that then the political program is to cut taxes on the wealthy and then and eviscerate all the programs that would help improve the lives of these people, whether it's health care. We don't have health care, as you know, uh, national health care or um, or even, you know, even family sick leave for families and, 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 and child care and all the things would improve the lives of a lot of these people, these working class people, these middle class people. But he's giving them a sense of I matter. I'm important. He cares about me. And it's 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 sad and on one level embarrassing that this is the state of American politics. But I think the left and the progressive movements in the United States and the Democratic Party doesn't get it and has been really um, behind the curve in trying to figure out how do we how do we create a narrative that speaks to these men, especially the I'm sorry, especially white men and especially uh, blue collar and middle class and lower middle class white men who um, who so I think are the natural constituency of progressive political uh, formations, but but are, are often being drawn into the the opposite, which, which are being drawn into uh, to the right. And that's I think it's a tragedy for both both for the United States and for the world. Uh, absolutely. And it reverberates, you know, in, on our shores as well. Um, you know, we may be an island, but we certainly import um, a lot of of your political. I mean, I think that the theater of politics and the cult of the personality that we now have adopted has come from the US. But I want to spend the next few minutes that we have talking about your next book. And it's entitled, Why Not All Men? And we've all heard the phrase, not all men, when feminists like me talk about rape and talk about the problems of male violence and those men that think they're exempt, that we get this kind of defensive collective shout and lots of women capitulate to it. Oh, of course, I don't mean you men. When actually the system of patriarchy does uphold those behaviours uh, and that abuse uh, of women. And so, yes, all men. So tell me, tell me about the book. Tell me how you chose the title and just a little bit of detail about it so we can really get some noise going about this forthcoming publication. Obviously, the not all men phrase was a phrase, that, you know, the, the, the publisher liked that because it was such a, a sort of flashpoint, especially after the, you know, the tragic, you know, rape and murder of Sarah Everard by the sitting police officer, Wayne Cousins, and how and how that, you know, that propelled a, a sort of level of activism or a renewed level of activism, especially feminist activism, especially among young women. Um, and there was, you know, the, the, I, obviously, as you know, because you're centrally involved in, in all of this, um, there's a lot of women who are just throwing their hands up, like, where are the men? Why aren't men doing this? And one of the things that I, I did a lot of interviews after this, after the the murder of Sarah Everard and um, a lot of, you know, uh, podcasts and, and news interviews. And one of the things that I said, because they, they would ask me, you know, people in the interview and they'd ask me, what can men do? You know, what, what can men do? And I would say the first thing is. You have to know that it, you're not starting from scratch. You know, men have been talking about and thinking about and working on these issues for 50 years. So you don't have to start from scratch. Go online. Do a, do a simple Google search. I mean, there's an organization, by the way, that I work with uh, called Equimundo. It's based in uh, Washington, D.C., but it has uh, satellite operations in, in multi multiple countries. And they produce incredible research and incredible um, studies about fatherhood, about care, about obviously about men's violence against women and in all these different countries all over the world. And they have, it's a great resource. And you just go to their website, equimundo.org. Um, and, and if you want, if you're a man, for example, and you want to see 
who's been thinking about these issues? What are they saying? What does the research show? What does the research show about the link between the loneliness epidemic among men, which is a big problem in the, uh, in, certainly in the Western world, and, um, and men's violence against women? What is the connection between, uh, like as I said earlier, men's violence against other men, murder, attempted murder, assault, aggravated assault, knife crime, gang violence, all of which are, is the majority of the violence is both perpetrated and experienced by yes. men and young men across class and race. And, and men's violence against women. All of this stuff has been thought about, has been written about, there's been studies about it, but if you don't know any of this and it, and it hasn't reached your sort of, you know, your feed, your news feed, you're probably going to think, oh, it's just, you know, lean on these old stereotypes. Feminists only care about men, excuse me, only care about women. And the men who do this work are, are just, uh, like you said earlier, like kind of eunuchs who don't really, you know, think for themselves, which is totally ridiculous. I mean, I, honestly, Julie, I just... This is like water off a duck's back. When I hear these ridiculous caricatures of men who do this work, and by the way, you'll hear it. Jordan Peterson, I'll give you an example. Jordan Peterson has said on numerous occasions, and I'm going to write a piece about this at some point soon. He just mocks men who speak out about sexism and men's violence against women. And he has a huge audience. And so he has millions, if he goes on Joe Rogan, he has 15 million people listening to what he has to say, or Piers Morgan interviews him, or Piers Morgan interviews Andrew Tate. And Andrew Tate will say, like men who, who you know, who speak out about men's violence or men who support feminists are, are wimps and, and soy boys and virtue signaling, yeah. uh, you know. Oh, I've heard it. And also, I mean, Jordan Peterson, um, after I tweeted something, some yet another horror story about violence against women, I just tweeted an article that I'd written for one of the newspapers here, which is that the one thing that unites women and girls all over the world, and we have so many differences, it's far easier to talk about that, but the one thing that unites us is the fear and reality of men's violence. We've all experienced either both or one of those things. And he saw my tweet. I didn't realise he'd followed me. And he responded by saying, this is absolutely batshit crazy ridiculous. Like, it just would not compute. He is so removed from reality when it comes to this stuff. I appreciate that. And he has a huge audience among men and young men. And, and I think part of the challenge for those of us who are doing the work, who are men doing the work, is that we have to have a bigger megaphone. We have to reach more men because, for example, one of the things that some of those men, including Andrew Tate, and in a more extreme way, obviously, his, his misogyny is even more extreme than, um, than Jordan Peterson's. Oh, for sure. But, but one of the things that they, that they do is they, they speak to men and they, in a sense, have convinced men that they care about men and that feminists and men like me don't care about men, which is total, as we say, BS, right? Thank you for taking this time to talk with me, Jackson, and very, very best wishes to you, and I hope we bump into each other soon.